Hello and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder of the jewellery brand Cleopatra's Bling. This month, we return for season two of the Cleopatra's Bling podcast, where we continue to meet the creatives and craftspeople who inspire our artisanal jewellery collections. Last season, we met with a beekeeper poet, a wild woman dancer and a mermaid historian. Hi everybody, um, I'm here today with Paola from Italy on my mind. We're sitting in her lovely courtyard under the fig tree in the warm Melbourne weather. Hi, I'm Paola, Paola Bacchia, and um, I'm known as Italy on my mind on social media. And I have a couple of cookbooks that I've written, uh, Italian street food, which is about the street food of Italy. It's got um, 80 recipes in there. And my second cookbook is Adriatico, Recipes and Stories of Italy's uh, Adriatic Coast, which is a journey along the Adriatic Coast, um, talking to people and collecting recipes. Now, both those books are available online through Amazon or through Booktopia. And, but if you're in Australia, you can buy them directly from my website, which is italyonmymind.com, and I will sign them for you and send you some postcards too. So we wanted to ask you about your childhood yeah. as like someone from an immigrant Italian background. Obviously, it's different now than it was then. How did, what was your experience? Yeah. Well, I mean, I grew up quite a few years ago. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, you know, a 25-year-old anymore. Um, but uh, growing up, it, um, my parents built a house right next to my aunts and uncles so they we had three houses within like a, a group and through the back fence we'd communicate with each other like and so we'd just slip through the fence to see the aunts and uncles and then slip through the other fence so it was like a community it was mm. trying to um, rebuild the community and the village that they'd left in Italy and they came here in the 1950s when mm. there was I mean there was quite a big wave of migration but there was even more people came in the 60s and also in the early 70s and they um I grew up in Box Hill when yeah. I was um really little and just when I started primary school and so we had like the Italian butcher the Italian fruiter of Box Hill was a suburb now it's like Chinese very yeah. much Chinese but it was Italian back then wow. and so they'd catch the bus and you know go and get um get the fruit and veg and get the bread and then once a week my dad would catch the train into the city to go to the, the Valmorbida family so they had an Italian grocer that sold parmigiano and prosciutto and things like that. And from he, Italy or maybe? Yeah, from Italy, from Italy, and it was the 50s. Wow. So Dad would go, would ride his bicycle to the station, then park it there, catch the train into the city, catch the tram, then come home with the bags, with the tram, the train, and then the bike, because food was so important. Yeah. So growing up, um, I guess because I'm, I'm blonde and I'm from Northern Italy, I actually looked quite different from the other Italians that I went to school with, but you still connected over food because our lunch boxes still had salami in them and mortadella and, you know, yeah. and, and things like that. My father uh, also insisted that my sister and I speak Italian at home, that so we weren't allowed to speak any English in the house. That's great. And it was, yeah, it was really, and Dad would say in our dialect, so we'd speak in our, um, our Venetian history and dialect, which was the one I grew up with, my first language. Um, you know, parlare in italiano, you know, speaking yeah. Italian. 
um, oh, bloody parla in Italian, bloody here. She said that before everything, which is bloody. Um, <laughs> and so my sister and I always spoke in Italian to each other at home. And that created a real um, Italian home mm. that, and you know, there wasn't internet, there weren't things like that. So it, it remained quite Italian, plus the connection with my aunts and uncles, my cousins. Yeah, that's great. I feel like a lot of people of your generation that had migrant parents often didn't get taught their language. Yeah, that's Which right. Which is mm. unfortunate. They, I think that the parents were trying to fit and trying yeah. to connect them in with, um, with the place where they were, you know, the new people mm. or the new kids on the block. So that, and for them, it was important to learn English too. Many, for example, my mother, um, both my parents worked in factories because they came here um, mm. unskilled. My dad had finished high school, but my mother hadn't. She'd finished primary school and worked in the family's bars. So she was like. Um, worked in shops pretty much yeah but dad had finished high school and the war came and tore everything apart in Italy but when he came here particularly because he'd been um, well instructed he he used to help all the other all our friends and my aunts and uncles get jobs he'd go with dictionaries and speak in English and, and learn how, and he did a course at Swinburne too to learn but the others didn't speak yeah. English very well and um, particularly if they ended up working with other Italians if they ended up working with Italians then that's it they didn't yeah. learn the language if they worked and then the women tended to have children and stay home particularly in the first years of the yeah. kids life um, my mother went back she stayed with us until we went to kindergarten and then went back to work but many of them just stayed home to look after the children and what do you think now in terms of migrant families do you find that people say in their 20s that have Italian parents speak the language or do you think it's no. yeah. never really been enforced? Because I, I have a quite a few Italian friends that are second generation mm -hmm. that don't speak Italian and I found that, mm -hmm. especially as Italians, they love their language and culture. I found it surprising. Mm. They don't and often in the family home they spoke the dialect and so yeah. you'd go out to, um, like to speak Italian, you didn't actually know Italian, you knew the dialect mm. which can be quite different depending on which part of Italy you're from because the dialect varies I always say from family to family because yeah. it does actually um, but villages pretty much yeah or regional but you use different words within a family that the next family might not use and so having those Italian but dialect Italian skills aren't easily transferable to another Italian person who's from mm. a different town or a different region so that they didn't turn, tend to speak uh, Italian outside of the home and then they'd start speaking a mixed Italian and English in the home. Mm. And so they don't. Like my daughter, now that she's in Italy, she um, she's got you know pretty good at Italian that's because she's surrounded by it but when she was here she listened to my mum and my dad and understand but she spoke back in English yeah and my dad didn't tell her off like he told off yeah. me and my sister she was speak. more Australian I suppose yeah. by that point yeah exactly but if you look at um people Italians who migrate here now with their kids I think that there's less dialect spoken. Mm. So they're also a different type of migrant comes out to Australia now. The ones that came out post-war came out because they were destitute. They had a big family. They couldn't feed them. The war had taken jobs, had taken everything from them. They saw Australia as a land of opportunity in a different way from the way that Italians of now would. They do come out because there's opportunity, but they're more likely to have studied. 
Yeah. So they speak Italian. They speak La Lingua Italiana, which is a yeah. proper Italian language rather than a dialect. So I think their children are more likely to speak Italian and then know it rather mm. than us who speak a dialect. That said, I went to school in Italy, so I do speak Italian as well. I do yeah. speak lingua. Um, but, yeah, it's a real sign of sort of that old generation of the initial Italians that came out, I mm. think, are different from the ones that come out now and might work in, you know, restaurants. There are a lot of people that come here and work in restaurants. There are people in Italy with degrees that haven't been able to find work. Yeah. Because the Italian um, job market is pretty closed, I think, unless you know someone. Most of the time. It's getting better now, but there's mm. a lot of, oh, I don't know, I don't want to use the word corruption, but there, you know. There, yeah, from sorry, my experience, there is. Um, so, you know, who gets the job is someone um, in your family or someone you know. Yeah, definitely. I experienced that in Naples as well. And they don't have high aspirations because the pay is so low. And Look, the pay is terrible. My nephew, um, Alex, who finished, he's a lawyer, he finished the last um, term of his degree in Prato at Monash University in, in just out of Florence. Very good at Italian. He couldn't, he got a job with, I think, an, I won't say the name of the company, an American company who took him on as a first year graduate, 1,000 euro a month. Yeah. How do you live on 1,000 euro a month? No, I have a friend my age who is has a degree, speaks perfect English, and she gets paid less than a thousand a month in Naples for full time marketing work. So I was shocked. Yeah, I can understand they'd come here for thirty dollars an hour. Yeah, exactly. They can't believe their luck. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, what are your strongest memories of food as a child growing up? I'm sure there are many. But... There are many. Now, Dad had a big vegetable garden, so. Uh, of um, like beans and tomatoes being picked fresh mm. and then my fa- like my mum preparing something and then my father saying that was you know growing an hour ago an hour ago that was growing it's like <laughs> you're eating really good food like yeah. uh, appreciate it so it was about the freshness and the seasonality like you knew mm. when you know it was and even what you bought that it was um, asparagus season it was springtime yeah. It was not something you ate in autumn. Yeah. So it was about the seasonality of things because they were grown in the garden. Um, it's about dad bringing back Italian produce. So we always had, you know, prosciutto and like cheeses. We always had a cheese box in the fridge with all different types of cheese that was wrapped up. And after every meal, cheese would come out. And we'd like cut it. You know, you hold the block of cheese and cut it with a knife. You yeah. don't put it on a chopping block. Like you do it like by hand. Um and then mum cooking her amazing um, sweets, which were fritole, which are, and you know, fritole is a word, it's like a, a fried ball. Yeah. But in a diff- different part of Italy, they have different ingredients. So mums had, have got grated apples in them, mm. sultanas soaked in grappa, pine nuts, and they're, you know, fried balls of, of citrus zest. Um, other things she made were crostoli that are called Yum. many different names across Italy, but they're little fried sweet mm. pastry things. And her apple strudel, which was amazing. So the strudel pastry is very, very thin, almost like a phyllo pastry, and then rolled up into a horseshoe shape. And that's, you know, something you find in northeast Italy because it's influenced by Austria, by the Slavic, like Slovenia, you'll find strudel. Um, yeah, yeah, so they're, they're, they were mum's special dishes and seafood all the time. My father, having grown up on the Adriatic coast, mm. seafood was three times a week. 
they'd go fishing with their friends on Port Phillip Bay, they'd go looking for clams. Back in the 70s, you could put your hand into the water in Mentone, Bow Morris, Davies Bay around Black Rock and collect handfuls of clams. There were mussels on the rocks. You know, I was uh, really quite little then, but I just, I remember the, the story. So I, I don't remember, you know, going there. When my aunt and uncle came out, he took them down there in like the early 80s and everything was gone. And he said, the Vietnamese people moved into Melbourne and they love seafood too. Yeah. He reckons they cleaned everything out. But I think everyone just found out that they Definitely. wanted to eat all the seafood that you could just get out of Port Phillip Bay. It was incredible that easy to find back then. Yeah, like Naples, actually. It's just local fishing. Yeah. Imagine how long that'll go on for, but... No, they'll, they'll eat it. They'll eat it dry, really. Oh, they, they eat it literally. I've seen them from the sea. Just, yeah, my dad used to do yeah. that, too. Yeah. I can't. <laughs> no, I know. It's a bit... It's a bit, sort a bit of funky. Salty, sort of fishy, too fishy. Yeah, too fishy for me, yeah. too. So where did your food of love, uh, your love of cooking begin? <laughs> well, it's... Um, it I began, suppose directly from yeah, directly your from my mum, yeah. and just because meal times were so special, we sat down and always had you know we sit down around the table. None of this eating in front of the TV or anything mm. like that, because food was about sharing, about being together, um, and so it came from my mum. Now I didn't cook very much until later in life because my. My dad always wanted my sister and I to study. We went to university. We did. I'm a dentist, yeah. so we did, not that I do clinical practice anymore. But you know, we and my sister um, was trained to be a high school teacher. So, having come from Italy with very little to Australia, my dad really wanted us to do well in the new country. So he was all much. Don't help your mum at all. I know she works full time and she's really busy cooking and cleaning and working, but you, you don't do anything except on a Sunday. The rest of the time you have to study. And so it was when my dad was sick with cancer that I really thought, God, my mum's not going to cook the same way anymore when he's not around because mm. she won't have him to cook for. So I really um, I got into uh writing down all her recipes and following her in the kitchen and documenting everything through my blog. Um, and that's where it, and I, I just jumped into it. My dad, before he passed away, I said, where did you learn to cook like this? I said, well, from mum. He said, but you were never in the kitchen. I'm like, yeah, but it, it went in. It went in and, and the flavours, like I cannot cook Asian food to save myself. I love it, but I cannot work out what goes with what. Yeah. And how to correct it. Um, but Italian food, you can just, I can do it with my eyes closed almost because it's its in me. Yeah. And it's particularly the northeastern Italian food because it's the food around Venice, around Trieste. I'm down to the Istrian Peninsula, so the top of the Adriatic. I was in MasterChef Series 4 in 2012. Were you really? Yeah, I was. And, um, but, you know, all I could do was Italian food. Like yeah. put something Asian in front of me. I'm like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Put, you know, like lamb in front of me. We never ate lamb because we didn't from where I'm from. Yeah. I, I don't know what. And when we, it was funny with MasterChef, we moved into a hotel um, for uh, every series, they do it differently. So there were 50 of us moved into a hotel for filming, and I was sharing a room with a girl called Deb. And she moved in with two suitcases. I had just one bag, like with a few changes of clothes. And she had two suitcases, one full of books. You know, one of those giant ones of cookbooks. 
and all of them sat up studying recipes every night. And I'm like, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> but then, you know, I left anyway. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't. I actually asked to leave because my dad was sick and I thought, yeah. They're like, oh, it doesn't matter. We can come and film. And I'm like, film my dad's sick? No, I'm yeah. leaving. So I left. I was on four episodes. Okay. Hmm. So Andy Allen won my year. Awesome. Andy Allen is now the new, one of the new judges. Wow. I'll have to look up your MasterChef. And Alice, um, Alice said, yeah. Great. Didn't know you'd done that. That's cool. Anyway. Um, so cooking and sharing a meal is more than just food and it brings people together. How has your food and cooking connected you with others and culture? Well, food is, um, is the most amazing connector of people because everyone has to eat. Mm. And, um, and for me, food brings back memories I think yeah and memories of meals or memories of things that you were doing while you had a meal or there's a smell of food there's a taste of food there's the colors of food there's just so much about food that is appealing and is memorable and brings you together that I um you know and, and when I look at uh food how it connects me to my past you know, you can see that that's the constant because the world changes, you know. I mean, mm. cooking techniques might change, but the food actually doesn't change. When you strip it back to its ingredients, it's the same. Although, you know, there's the world is a different, I mean, tutto il mondo è paese, they say. You know, the yeah. world, all the world is a village. So, and now everything's you can find everything everywhere. But if you look back to you know, traditionally what was in a place. It was inspired by the, you know, the um, the climate and what grew there and what was easy to get, but also by the different cultures that moved into it. So giving Istria as an example, which is the Istrian Peninsula is where my dad's from, and it was many different countries. It was um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire for hundreds of years. It was the Venetian Republic for 500 years. The Romans were there. Um, it was Italy. It's now divided between a tiny little bit of Italy and a little chunk of Slovenia and mainly Croatia. And the food there is a mix of all these different cultures. You'll find sauerkraut, you'll find paprika. They're things that have came down with the, um, with the Hungarians. You'll find those uh, layer cakes, like Viennese layer cakes, because that came with Austria. And then you will find polenta and gnocchi, you know, very Italian mm. food. And in those elements of food, there's all these memories of the past, of the people who've lived there, um, and their stories are buried in that, which is why, to me, it's, apart from being half from there, it's a very interesting food culture and now you've got our uh, Slavic influence with a lot of uh, grilled meats and um, uh, see but uh, there's a lot of the food there is still Italian because it's got a very strong Italian uh, historical context Italian food always survives I feel yeah. like it's so loved yeah it's so accessible like, yeah if you look at what um, children might like Italian sort of comfort food you've got tomatoes yeah. you've got you know potatoes you've got cheese they're things that kids like bread mm. they're not unusually strong flavors sure there's olives and bottarga and you know capers and things like that but they're add-ons and Italian food you can sort of make it really simple for kids to yeah. like and then add on the more complex taste for you to with your more mature palate to enjoy yeah. I found after living in Paris for six years the food is more sort of cerebral Whereas the Italian food is really like carnal, you know, it's like all about sharing and it's kind of feels more rustic 
so it's more accessible and you know even price wise it's never uber fancy yeah. in a way like you don't get that sort of gastronomy that you get in Paris that's sort of conceptualized yeah. in a way like in yeah, Italy you no. can always get mm, really simple food and it's great and you pay 10 euros and you have a, a, an incredible meal yeah you do absolutely I mean Italy does have its chefs that are very chefy with foamy yeah. things and they'll do a cacio e pepe with a foam thing with a fried thing and to me it's like and you're hungry oh, after it's <laughs> really fussy I just yeah. want a big rustic plate of stuff yeah that is the food that I love to cook and I love to eat a big plate of something. I like eating all on one plate. Like yeah. really, I'll have the pasta and then the salad I'll put on the same plate. Yeah, me I too. That's what I loved about Naples. It really wasn't fussy. And you just go to like a, I don't know, a taverna and like have a really simple meal. Yeah. One glass of wine and mm. a lot of um, bread, scarpette, yeah. put in a just soak Absolutely. up the don't leave, don't leave anything no. on the plate and yeah. wine is really important too when i think mm. of growing up um and we didn't have cordial or any of that yeah, rubbish in stuff. the house we drank from maybe two like pink water so it was a glass of water with a little splash of red wine to yeah make it pink so i've apart from my name being bacchia i always tell this story it comes from bacchus comes from bacco so it's um, very much wine yeah. are wine growers and to me wine was the only drink you can possibly have and the only one that we had in the house so mm. the children even drank uh, water with a little splash of wine in there growing up like that from a young age you don't you know go out at 16 and get obliterated yeah yeah sloshed they drink less like people think that they drink more because they've got more access to it but I don't I didn't find that at all no, they don't. They drink less and they drink it with food. Like even yeah. the aperitivo that you will go out and have at a bar, you have it with food. They always yeah. bring out something to eat because yeah. that is, they go together. Mm. Yeah, it's, it was refreshing for me. Um, so what influenced your cookbook and drew you to focus on the Adriatic coast? I mean, I think I know the answer. Yeah. <laughs> so the... My father grew up on the shores of the Adriatic, so for me it's... Um, and my mother did. My mother from um, near Treviso is very close to Venice, so that is also on the Adriatic side mm. of Italy. So it's to me it's the coast that I knew best of all, particularly the northeastern one. But then when I... So I've written two cookbooks, so Italian Street Food and uh, Adriatico, and for both of them I've done all the photography in the book as well as location photos and food photos, but... I went on research trips for both of them and particularly for Adriatico which I focused as a journey along the Adriatic coast stopping in seven places that are geographic features rather than regions because with regions people then have this preconceived idea about a region whereas food's a little bit regional but it's like the villages that are along yeah and um, so to me it's funny because Puglia even though it's 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 um it's part of Italy, it's only a hundred kilometers or less from Albania. Yeah. Like in Le Marche, so further up the coast, the stone that they've built, you know, the houses in comes from Istria because Istria is just across the sea. So they were more connected to the people on the opposite coast than they were necessarily to the Italians over the other side of the mountain range that particularly hundreds of years ago were very hard to cross. Mm. You had to go around the water because those mountain, like there's a big mountain range down the middle of the boot of Italy. So the Adriatic I view as a connector of people. 
Um, there's a lot of Pugliesi up in Trieste too because they came up after World War II um, and they marketed jobs to them. So a lot of people from Puglia up there and I just feel a connection with everyone along the Adriatic. Uh, the seafood, it's just the, I don't know, it's that whole body of water that, that, that drew me in. Um, so when I thought about writing a cookbook about Italy, to me it was natural that you focus on, and people focus on the other coast a lot because yeah. it's got, you know, it's got Sardinia, it's got Naples, it's got, it's close to Rome, it's close to, you know, you've got Pisa, just Livorno, you've got Genova, it's absolutely beautiful coast, you've got the Amalfi Coast, but the other side, a lot of people don't go to, I mean now yeah, they go to Puglia. Puglia is more. very trendy at the moment. At the moment, but 15 years ago, yeah. no one went to Puglia, no one knew about it. But you've got Abruzzo that people still don't go to, Le Marche that no one knows about, really. Mm. And Emilia-Romagna is like, there's a lot of Italians go there, but not a lot of tourists, I find. Then Venice, everyone knows. and Absolutely. Yeah, and Trieste, people Florence. are starting to go. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's, um, yeah, I think... I just, I really wanted to connect all those places in a book. And to me, it was, it's where I'm from. Yeah. It's like the Mediterranean. It's sort of like living in Turkey. And then you'd go to Greece and you'd feel like you're in Turkey, except for the language. It's sort of the similar similar concept to me. Yeah, it is It is very connected. And for mm. that reason, I find Greece too to be a bit of a, a connection Definitely. as well. Because not that far away and the Greeks were if you look at Puglia the Greeks were in Puglia yeah. um, for a long time they brought um, horses there and there was there's still wild horses that are from those original ones that were brought over by the Greeks this is thousands of it's years amazing. ago they brought the olive the culture of olives mm. um, and olive oil and in the middle of Puglia there's um, some populations there's four villages that are still Greek and they speak a language called Greco which is similar to ancient Greek. So it's more like ancient Greek than it is like modern Greek. So when I did a tour, I, I've run a tour in Puglia um, and I was going to do another one in 2020, but it didn't happen. <laughs> Maybe 2021. Um, we stopped in a town where they speak Greek and wow. we found um, a guy, I can't remember his name now, but he recited poem to us in Greek. I put it on my Instagram feed. So it's in my Puglia tour highlights. It's in one look. of those where he speaks in Greek, which is, ama- in Grico, which is amazing. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's like Napolitano, like that, like that dialect is classified by unesco as actually a language rather than a dialect because it's got its whole own grammatical structure and conjugation like a language like it isn't just a dialect very interesting can can, you understand it i can understand certain slang um in napoletano but like if you just spoke to me in pure napoletano no way like it doesn't sound anything like Italian. No, I know. Yeah. There, there's a series on TV at the moment called Gomorra, which yeah. is of course, and I've been listening to them, it's all in Neapolitan and it's, it's got English subtitles. But if I was in Italy, like my Italian friends are saying, if we didn't have English subtitles, we couldn't understand no, it. I hope in Italy they've got Italian subtitles. Cause yeah, I think it, they would because no one can understand. No. Even like Neapolitans, I think they have to actually study it to be able to write it. They can often speak it, but not write it even the the accent in naples if you speak to someone that is very very local from sort of one of the you know i don't know if you know well all the little districts that sanita mm. for example is sort of like a very local area they'll speak to you in 
Napolitano and not understand that you can't understand. So you're like, can you please speak Italian? Because <laughs> I can't. Often their Napolitano is better than their Italian, so. Yeah. I think it's awesome. but Yeah. Oh, no, it is really cool. And there's other like uh, Friuli, which is yeah. right up north. They've got their own language and their signs are written in their towns, are written in um, in three languages because there's a lot of Germans, Austrians there. So it's German, Friulano and Italiano Yeah. on each sign. Mm. It's crazy. It's good, though. I it's love really it. It's really cool. It's really cool. I think uh, dialects are something that need to be nurtured rather mm. than... I went to school in Italy for um, a couple of years because we migrated back to Italy, of course. A lot of families did that and it didn't work, came back here. So at that time, in their 70s and 80s, they didn't want to speak dialect. Like, And I was one of the few people in the class who spoke dialect. So I had a group of friends I'd speak dialect to, but they looked down on us. Or don't you know how to speak real Italian? Mm, that's interesting. Are you a peasant? But that's changed quite a bit now. Now it's a point of pride, I think. Like from my experience, anyway, it's recent. Mm. I found that Neapolitans are proud of their language. Mm. Oh, I think things have changed, mm. and it's probably different in different parts of Italy. I'm speaking from a Triestino yeah. side of things, right at the top of the Adriatic. Yeah, mm. the north is very different from the south. That's mm. for sure. So your approach to your website and taking initiative with the circumstances of 2020 by starting online cooking classes is very creative and entrepreneurial. Can you tell us about how you came to running a business from being a dentist? Yeah, I know. it's crazy, isn't it? Mm. So, like dentistry, I um I was in um I used to run the dental hospital. I was a manager for the latter part of my career, and then. Um, I actually hurt my back because dentistry is a really stupid job. Like you're really bent, bent yeah, over, and you're pretzelled. And I'm very tall, so it was, never, it was just never going to work. I got into management, and then eventually it was like I just I need to do something better with my life. And it was when um, my dad got sick that I started cooking. And once you fall in love with you know food, and you want to cook for people. You just want to cook for everyone. So how do you do that? You have to run a cooking class. You have to teach mm. other people to cook. So I didn't have any sort of, I didn't get anyone to help me. I just, I put it out there. I just, yeah, I'm running. I worked out from the council that I can. I got permits. I did everything I needed to. And I just invited people over and we started doing it. Um, and Instagram, social media has been wonderful because that, I mean, sure, I've got my website, but I get most of my um uh, people come from social media, from Instagram yeah. in particular. And then, I mean, the other aspect of my business, I guess, is food tours. And um, that was fortuitous, I think. I ran into um, Fabrizia Lanza, who runs the Anna Lanza Cooking School at the Tomato Festival. And a few years ago, like maybe five years ago, and I went up and spoke to her, and she invited me to visit her. And she's saying, do you have followers? I said, yeah, I've got followers. She well, bring your followers to Sicily. Come on, we'll run a workshop with me. So I went, next time I was in Italy, I went and stayed with her. And she said, do you like it? Do you want to run a workshop? And I went, yeah. So I ran a lot of questions. <laughs> I Who would say no? So I ran a couple of workshops there. And then once the people from Puglia um, in Southern Visions Travel Scene had seen that I'd done a few workshops with Fabrizia in um, in Sicily because it's quite a, a renowned uh, cooking school in mm. the centre of Sicily. Then they said, "Oh, you work with Fabrizia. Well, you should come and do tours with us." Then, 
And so then I went on to the Puglia tour. So um, that's another aspect. And then the cookbooks, I was approached by um, Paul McNally from Smith Street Books. He wrote me an email, said, I've heard about you. You take great photos, you write recipes, do you want to write a cookbook about Italian street food? This was while I was working at the dental hospital, which was great. All meant to happen. It it just meant to happen. So like the next day I said yes, and then two weeks later I was on a plane. Incredible. It's all just happened. It's it's been wonderful. I think I've been very lucky, but it's been through social media that I Mm. have um, been able to develop my business. Now, of course, the pandemic, like everything stopped had to cancel my tour, yeah. um, stop all my cooking classes. I reopened them uh, briefly during the two shutdowns, but then I had to have fewer people because of social distancing. And, and it everyone, feels awkward as well. And it was really awkward because, you know, people were saying, can you help me with this? I'm like, I'm not meant to come close to you, but then I would and, you know, it, was, it, it just wasn't working. And, I mean, I love running cooking classes in my home. I, wanna, I don't want to give people a commercial kitchen experience where there's stainless steel benches and everyone's in a uniform and you've got the hats and a silly hat like the Italians wear these hats all the time um and you know you've got products and big pots and stoves that you don't have at home yeah I think it's important I want to teach people a skill that they can take home and and make it's not sure it's about sitting down having a meal as well but the actual focus is on let me teach you a skill that you will then will then bring joy to your family and to friends because you will take that home so to me the only place to run classes in is in my home Mm. and then I couldn't do that so um, a couple of people who I um, Carla Tomasi who's um, a great Italian lady who worked in England for many years she's a, a chef and she started running online classes and I saw she was doing it and, you know, we sort of chatted. And then another lady called Domenica Marchetti, who's in um, Virginia in the USA. She's written a lot of cookbooks and we've done lots of Skype talks and we were going to run a tour together this year and it didn't happen. And she started running them too. So I got knowledge from those ladies and then just started. And they were really, they've been really popular. Now they've sort of dropped off yeah. because, and that's understandable, it's summer. And I want to get, people want to get outside. They don't want to be inside. But my online classes have had people from America, from Dubai, from Singapore, from India. It just opens, as well as interstate, but it opens up the world to you. And people will do classes at 5 a.m. I've had people making gnocchi at 5 a.m. because of the time zones. But they're like, no, it's fine. I said, well, we're having a glass of wine. What are you having? She's like, yeah, what the hell? I'll have some wine too. (laughs) So it's been lovely. And for next year, you know, and I, I've, but I've still got a backlog of over 50 people who, well, yeah, I know. I've offered money back to them, but most of them have said, no, I really want to wait till you open again. Waking, waiting is, list. That's yeah, great. which is really nice. I've had a big waiting list. And at the moment, I'm just trying to work out to fit those people in, um, in December and then in um, February, March, because January, it's too hot here. Yeah. And then once I've sort of, they've all had their classes, I might even change the types of classes I do because I'll still, I still want to do some online classes. And I'd like to focus on things that are all being my new cookbook, um, things like strudel pastry that people have. And my next book's got three strudels in it, like wow. savoury ones, some are oven baked, some are boiled, you know, different types. So I'd like to do classes that focus on those techniques. Again, it's about people learning skills that they can then take home yeah that's great we'll join one 
just have to wait till they come. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we've seen also that you do salami making. I've always wanted to do that. Um, and how the process is really social and it brings a lot of people together. What are sort of some other um, special Italian tr traditions that you've seen keeping people together, the community together? Okay. So salumi making is a big one. Mm -hmm. um, and we do that every year except for this year because, you know, we yeah. couldn't. Um, and that's in winter. But growing up, we would make passata. So with mm. the tomatoes out of Dad's garden, Dad always had a really big, um, those really tall tomatoes. They were as tall as him. Um, and you know, make the passata. Then um, from the fruit trees, jam. So mm. there's always lots and lots of plum jam, apricot jam, even peach jam. I managed to get, so the year before mum, my mum passed away this year. Um, the year before she moved out of her home, dad and dad had died like eight years beforehand. But his white peach tree, which he just adored, it had one year, it had the last year mum was there, so much fruit on it like massive and it was so heavy that it split in half down the middle so it was terminal the branches just but i managed to tie it together and pick these peaches the last peaches of that tree ever produced i made them into jam and i've still got one heartbreaking um, i was so sad that yeah. dad's tree was had broken but it was like it knew yeah it was really um yeah it was really odd but it was really special at the same time. Mm. So jams and then with the tomatoes, also roasting them in the oven slowly to then put them in olive oil. Um, pesto, mum would always, we'd always have lots of basil pesto, even like when she had some there for years and years. I'm like, mum, it's gone off. It's okay. I made that when your father was around. Like, yeah, he's... <laughs> Probably shouldn't eat this. I shouldn't eat that. What about the sotto olio sort of... Things the like pickles, yeah. yeah. Like the only one sotto that she'd do would be the tomatoes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and we didn't really do pickles, although I do them because it's more of a um, um, sort of from Istria. They have like mm. sauerkraut, and and I do that now. But we would buy sauerkraut because we ate a lot of sauerkraut and sausages and beans because that's very typical of Istria. Um, mm. And, yeah, but I make, that's something that I make now, but she never made it. They would buy those bags of sauerkraut, which I buy too, with a whole, have you seen them with a the whole cabbage that's pickled? No, but I need to know about this because I love oh, oh, sauerkraut. Oh, okay, when we finish this, I've got one upstairs in the fridge. I'll show it to you. Oh, I'd it's love to really see. It's really cool. Yeah. What yeah. about alici marinati and things like that? No. Do you do them? No. No, we don't. We don't do that sort of thing. I think we it's very Neapolitan. It. I think. Yeah, it is very Neapolitan. I mean, we ate a lot of seafood. We ate a lot of um, alice. You can't find here, of course. Fresh no, ones. not as. Yeah, I've got a local supermarket that have them, but it's just never the same. Yeah, not so fresh one, and the seafood's not the same. Like when I was in Capri, I know that the um, Gianluca would make. You know, he's the chef. He would make all these. They were just with lemon juice or mm. and they would just cure in half an hour and you could eat them. Yeah. But you can't, I no. don't know how fresh it is here. But I get sardines um, often because sardines were something that we ate a lot, even though they're massive here. Yeah, like they in Italy, are, we'd they? get sardines and they were very small. But here they're a lot bigger. But I make them in Savor, which is in, um, you pan fry them and then you layer them with onions that have been cooked slowly in the same um in the same dish and so it's layers of onion and bay leaves and uh, the sardines and a little bit of um sultanas and pine nuts and you mm. leave them there for like a week wow they are so good they're venetian but also in istria we have them too and in trieste 
Incredible. Delicious. So do you have, we've got two more questions. Do you have a most sentimental recipe or dish? If there's one go-to comfort meal you would make. Oh, it's really or hard two. to narrow it down, down to one. I mean, for me, um, probably a savory one would be gnocchi. Because mm. mum was a big gnocchi maker. So Potato gno- gnocchi? Yeah, potato yeah. gnocchi. But there are lots of different yeah. types of gnocchi. Gnocchi made with semolina are just beautiful. Wow. We call them gnocchi di gries. And gries is a German word or Austrian word. And it's a semolina dough that you make into a gnocco. You make it into a cunel. And then you cook it in chicken broth. So it absorbs. It's got parmesan in it. It absorbs the broth and becomes fat because it's got eggs in it too. So it's got, um, I mean... A, absorbs the fat i'm sorry go back <laughs> the wording of that not what i was saying there but you make it with um uh, egg white that you've beaten and a bit of egg yolk and the semolina and uh, parmesan and you make a quenelle and you cook it in chicken broth mm. and as it cooks it swells because of the egg white in there and it absorbs the broth so it Yum. tastes of that chicken broth it is just delicious um but there's also potato gnocchi with my mum's meat sorghum oh that sounds amazing. Just the best. So, oh my gosh, my stomach is rumbling. See, it's I'm talking so, about yeah, food. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm so excited for lunch now. So how has 2020 changed the way that you've worked? Well, I mean, it's um, 2020 has been a really difficult year because mm. everything that I'd had planned for the year, it just sort of fell in a giant heap. Yeah. Um, so I had my book to finish, which was the one that I was meant to travel I was meant to travel to do the mm. final. I'd rented a villa for a month. I was meant to do all this cooking, all this photography on location, and it all fell through. But I managed to do it here, so that was a good thing. But my um, other business, my tours and my um, cooking classes all fell through. So the online classes was a um, was a, a big thing. And then I guess it's changed the, the way that I will look forwards to because I don't think we can rely necessarily on no. being able to travel all the time. I agree with you, which I, is a scary thing to admit. But. I, completely for people who love traveling mm. and who travel so much it's actually quite frightening to yeah. think what do you mean i can't go over there um so i've got a tour of puglia planned for 2021 but i don't know if that will happen at the end of the year so um i i think moving forwards i will still uh, i will do online classes and some in-person classes on specific things and for tours i think i'll just have to wait i don't I might do other types of workshops here, maybe more collaboration with um, yeah. with other local people since we're all not travelling. Mm. Um, that might be a good thing. I'd like to also do an e-book that I started before my mum passed away about um, I used to have lunch with her um, yeah, a few I saw times on your away. Instagram. It's really sweet. Yeah, so we go. And uh, a book called Lunch with Mum, and I've already started. I've got 30 recipes. I've written down a lot of the recipes, the rest, you know, and I've taken a few photos. Um, so maybe pulling that together will be something that will be really fun to do in 2021. Also to remember her because she passed away this year. Yeah. And then I've got my book um, on the Istrian Peninsula food, food and the people of the Istrian Peninsula coming out next year too. So 2021 will be a great year for that. That's good. Well, let's hope the travel opens up. So can you tell us, you just mentioned there's an interesting story behind your fig tree. Yeah, so um, some good friends of mine, uh, Veliana and Paolo, bought a house in Faulkner and in the back of the house, in the backyard, there was a, a big 
um, I guess orchard there was all sorts of different fruit trees and in incredibly there was a, there was a fig tree which was amazing and the neighbors told them the story of how the fig tree had come to be so the man who'd um, the couple had died clearly but in the late 60s when they'd migrated out from Italy he brought a cutting of his favorite fig tree which was a black fig inside his walking stick and brought it to Australia inside this stick on the plane and then you know brought it and planted it and it just it thrived and made the most amazing figs now because my friends were um, renovating they had to knock down the backyard like knock down everything in the backyard because they were building a second house but my friend Vedliana saved some cuttings of the fig tree and she's got two trees and I've got two cuttings as well. So the fig tree was really meant to survive after coming out from Abruzzo. So they were Abruzzese. It's an Abruzzese fig. And they are so sweet. I've had the beautiful big black figs. It's an incredible story. Well, thanks for your time. Oh, my pleasure. It was, it was really lovely, lovely chatting. Yeah, yeah, you too. Interestingly, Paola has the same last name as a pair of earrings from our last collection, Desert Rose. The Bacchus earrings are bunches of grapes made from stone beads. Grapes symbolise good cheer, good health, and giving in to one's intuitions and emotions in ancient Greece. They were intrinsically connected to the god of wine, Bacchus, who was known for his perpetual happiness and lack of inhibition and restraint. This symbol reminds us to be liberated, open, and to follow our feelings. This podcast was produced by Liam Goff and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Elva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Until next time, stay curious.